Now hear God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 20, continuing our study in the book of Samuel. Then David fled from Nioth in Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So Jonathan said to him, by no means, you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Then David took an oath again and said, your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your holy word and we ask you to guide us into it by your Holy Spirit today. We pray that you would fill us with understanding, that you would fill us with a sense of your care and love and your, your covenant commitment to your people and how uh, these two brothers walk together in this uh, this 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 relationship of trust and, and mutual respect. So Father, grant us this. Grant us all what David and Jonathan had and, and bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, if you have tried to organize a party or any kind of event, you know how hard it is to get people to commit to be there and then to actually commit to keep the commitment. You know, it's hard to get promises and then, and then it's even more difficult to, to have folks actually keep the commitment that they made. In the early days of internet invitations, um, you know, you get these party invitations through the internet, through email. Uh, I used to joke, if, if I sent one out, I used to joke, if somebody clicks, yes, I will absolutely be there, you got about a 50-50 shot of them actually being there. If they click, maybe they're not coming. <laughs> They're definitely not coming if they click maybe. And if they click no, that means who are you and how did you get my email address? And who, who do you think you are to invite me to your party? That was 10 years ago, and now it's a small victory if people even open the email, right? Uh, I, I know there are exceptions. I know, I know I'm painting with a broad brush. But again, if you've ever tried organizing things, you know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And I, I know several of us have talked about this informally before, but it seems that for some reason... Folks just have a hard time making commitments and then keeping commitments. They have trouble making promises to do a thing or to be somewhere at a certain time. And if they do make a promise, it, it is about 50-50, uh, it seems, that they actually keep the promise. It just seems like you can't trust anyone to do what they say they will do. And you end up adopting kind of a cynical, well, I'll believe it when I see it kind of attitude. And it's no surprise that if we are a generation who generally have trouble keeping small promises. If we've got trouble keeping lunch commitments and promises to come to a dinner party, then bigger promises, you know, promises that take work to keep, promises that require sacrifice, promises like till death do us part, those are totally off the table. If we can't keep the small promises, if we can't keep the small commitments, then the big ones are impossible because we are promise breakers. All the way down to the molecular level, we just break promises, that's who we are. We have trouble with commitment, and so if we can't keep little commitments, we'll never keep big commitments. That's, that's off the table. 
And so we, ha- we have this kind of cultural attitude toward promises and vows and commitments. Like, well, what, is, what is a promise anyway? What is a vow? What is a, what is a covenant? Those are vocabulary words of a foreign language to us. Few people think in terms of commitment. And you, you get this sense that, well, I, I said I would do that thing because that's how I felt at the time. But I've changed since then. I've evolved and you haven't, you haven't changed, so I'm free from my commitment. I can get out of it, or I had something more important, or uh, there are just circumstances you can't understand. You don't know what I'm going through, and so I can't keep these commitments. You see that people don't want to be backed into a corner, and they don't want to make any vows or covenants to begin with. They say, I don't need a piece of paper. I don't need a ceremony to prove I love you, baby. Let's just, let's just have an apartment together, and we'll get a dog, and it'll be like a little family. And so we've made a complete mockery out of the institution of marriage. Among the many covenants that we break, uh, marriage is the one that we seem to take less and less seriously all the time as a generation. So here's why it's so essential that you and I restore a biblical emphasis that is completely lost in our society, the theology of the covenant, that that doctrine that God has committed himself, he has covenanted with himself in the persons of the Trinity, and that he has promised himself to mankind, and that God is a God who keeps his promises. He is faithful to his covenants. And he pursues man with this covenant love, this love that binds him to us and us to him. It is a covenant that that we have between us and our God. It is a covenant that is refreshed and renewed continually through repentance and forgiveness, through words of grace and correction, and through the sacraments. And, And this is what God shows us. He demonstrates Through his covenant love, God demonstrates that love commits itself. And so to the couple who just wants to live together and doesn't need the piece of paper, you say, no, 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 you don't understand. Love submits itself to another. Love binds itself. Love wants to be in a covenant. And if it doesn't want to be in a covenant, then it's not love. It may be lust. It may be infatuation. But it's not love. Because God's covenant love seeks to be bound. God's covenant love seeks to be be knit together. That is what love is. Love binds itself. Psalm 15 praises the man who swears to his own hurt and does not change. I, I love that little phrase. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change is blessed of Yahweh. That means if I made a promise to you, if I have committed to you, I am going to keep it no matter what, if the circumstances change and it makes it that much harder to keep the promise. I've sworn to my own hurt and I don't change and I keep the promise that I made. If I go to the fish market and say, hey man, I want to come over to your house and I'll bless you with, you know, 37 lobsters and let's, let's have a big party tonight. And then I go back to the market and the market price has shot up fivefold. And we say, well, I made a promise And unless you let me out of this commitment to provide lobsters for you and your 37 closest friends, I'm going to keep that promise. That's that's a ridiculous example. But you see, we think that we always get out of things because the circumstances change and feelings change. But that's not what lets us out out of promises. A covenant love 
says, I don't care what else comes up or what I may have to do without. I don't care what I may miss. I've got your name on my calendar. I promise to do this thing for you. And unless I'm physically prevented from being there through some extraordinary circumstance or providence, I'm talking aliens have to show up and suck me out of my bed to keep me from being there and doing the thing I told you I would do. You see, unless something crazy happens, I'm going to be there and I'm going to do that thing. So, so what's missing in this covenant breaking or, or covenant avoiding generation that we live in is the understanding that good covenants are protections. Covenants are not a drudgery. They're not a chain around your neck. Covenants are security. Covenants are pledges to stick close together no matter what. You made a promise like that and it's sure to be tested, but you grind it out and you keep your promises. The subject of covenant fidelity is highlighted. It's, it's comes, it comes into sharp relief in this chapter of 1 Samuel, which is what we're about to read this morning is the longest narrative of the book so far. Not a lot of adventure happens in 1 Samuel chapter 20. There's, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of dialogue, uh, but there's not a lot of adventure. There are these long conversations between Jonathan and David and then Jonathan and Saul and in another conversation between Jonathan and David. And so the inspired author lets this, lets this breathe a little bit. He slows the narrative way down and he lets these conversations breathe so that you can soak in this covenant commitment that was established between Jonathan and David. And what happens here is significant. This is David's final departure from the house of Saul. And David is going to go into his own kind of wilderness wandering period. And in leaving, in leaving the house of Saul, he once again binds himself to Jonathan. He and Jonathan make enduring promises to each other. There's, there's confidence and there's safety in this relationship between David and Jonathan because they understand not only have we made these promises to each other, but we've made these promises before God. And to break these promises means that we are violating our covenant. We are profaning our covenant before God, our creator. So our relationship and our covenant is all bound up in God's covenant with us. Remember where we've been so far. Saul is envious of the praise that David is getting from the people. And every time that David is faithful, every time David goes and does something amazing and something wonderful, and, and David is faithful in war against God's enemies, Saul doesn't rejoice. Saul becomes enraged and full of envy at the praise that David is getting. And so Saul wants David's head. David's wife who happens to be Saul's daughter, David's wife, Michal, helps David escape one night out of the window when they know that Saul is coming for David. David runs and he stays with Samuel at the school of the prophets in Ramah. That's when Saul sends three companies of, of thugs to go kidnap David, to go capture him. And every time Saul sends a wave of, of his lackeys, they fall down struck by the power of the Holy Spirit when they get close to the school of the prophets. And then Saul says, well, if you want something done, you got to do it yourself. And Saul goes there himself. And Saul is struck down by the overwhelming power of the Holy Spirit. And Saul is incapacitated. Now, as this chapter opens, David flees from Samuel's house and goes back to Jonathan and thus begins their interchange. I read just the first few sentences a few minutes ago. The first thing that David asked Jonathan is, what have I done? 
what have I deserved? Oh, I'm sorry, what have I done to deserve this treatment from your father? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And this is a reality check and a, and a heart check and a gut check for David. He's asking, you know, even if Saul's actions toward me aren't entirely pure, even if they aren't entirely righteous, it's possible that I have done something to provoke him to this. In fact, I may very well have sinned against Saul, and I may be, in some measure, deserving of this treatment. Have I warranted this response? Have I sinned against Saul? Have I failed in some duty? And this is an important place for all of us to start. Whenever we're in conflict, whenever, whenever things get tough and, and anxious and difficult, we ask first, wait a minute, am I responsible for this? What have I done wrong? Where have I sinned? What have I done to deserve this treatment? And more often than not, the answer, if we, if we have a proper self-diagnosis, the answer is, yeah, I really have contributed to this bad stuff. I have sinned against this person. I, I have really, uh, I, I own this. Uh, and, and I need to correct myself. I need to repent. Here, though, it's very obvious that David, and there are these situations, David has done nothing to deserve this treatment. And, and you'll find yourself occasionally in that situation where somebody is irrationally, explosively angry with you, and there's nothing you've done to deserve it. You haven't, you haven't sinned. But David... You can just feel the anxiety in this conversation with Jonathan. You can, you can feel the stress of David. His confidence is so low at this point. Uh, Jonathan encourages David and says, look, brother, you're not going to die. My father doesn't do anything without telling me about it first. And why would I hide it from you if I knew that he was really going to kill you? I mean, I know dad has his days. Boy, he's really tough to get along with sometimes. Uh, he's got his problems with anger but he doesn't really mean to kill you. And this is where David throws cold water in Jonathan's face and says, you need to wake up. Your dad knows how much you like me. And your dad is not going to tell you his plans again after the last time that you helped me and Mikhail helped me. And David says, I'm only a step away from death here. I, that just, just mouth those words. Have you, have you ever said, you know what? I, I'm a hair away from dying. Here. This, this, is, this is about to be it. This, this, is going to, this is going to be the end of me. So you, you can hear the, the anxiety and the stress in David. I mean, the last time I was in your dad's house, he threw a javelin at me and I barely escaped. And there's no telling if I'm going to make it out of there as safely the next time. And that's where, that's where we left off. So let's pick up in verse four. So Jonathan said to David, whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go, that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David, earnestly ask permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of Yahweh with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan said, far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? 
And David said to Jonathan, who will tell me or what if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out to the field and Jonathan said to David, Yahweh God of Israel is my witness when I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day. And indeed there is good toward David and I do not send to you and tell you, may Yahweh do so more and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety and Yahweh be with you as he has been with my father. And you shall not only show me the kindness of Yahweh while I still live that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when Yahweh has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, let Yahweh require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now, Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you've stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone Ezel. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And there I will send the lad saying, go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them and come. Then as Yahweh lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you, go your way for Yahweh has sent you away. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed Yahweh be between you and me forever. David has a plan, which he pitches to Jonathan. He says, here's how we're gonna tell what Saul's intentions are toward me. David is pretty sure what Saul's intentions are. Jonathan needs to see what is going on here. Jonathan, you understand, he's caught between a, in a bind between his father and his friend. You know, you, you want to be loyal. You want to honor your father. And you, you love your friend. And he's caught in the middle here. So, so this is, I, I believe this exercise is more for Jonathan than it is for David. David understands what's happening. So there's a feast, there's a feast tomorrow. In Israel's festival calendar, every new moon was a Sabbath. So every, every time the moon went completely dark and began its new cycle, uh, you had a feast and you, you gave, uh, offered sacrifices. It was a monthly festival, a time of feasting. And so for Saul's house, the new moon festival, it looks like was a three-day affair. They made a really big deal out of it. Every month though, everyone in the house was expected to be present at this big feast. No excuses, nobody gets out, nobody has other things to do, everyone's here. And David tells Jonathan, I'm not going to that tomorrow. I'm not gonna be there. I'm gonna be waiting out in the field until the third day. And of course, this third day uh, narrative uh, comes, comes to the foreground. This is, this is gonna be a day of resurrection for, for David. This is gonna mark the death of David's relationship to Saul's house and the birth of David's new role in, in Israel. But David says, I'm not gonna go to the feast. Tell your dad that I've instead chosen to go back to Bethlehem because we have a, we have a tradition back in Bethlehem uh, we have a yearly festival and sacrifice. So in other words, I'm, I'm going home for Thanksgiving. Tell your dad I'm not, I'm not going to be there. Now, Jonathan, when you tell him that I'm not there, I want you to pay close attention to how he receives this news. If Saul says, well, that's just fine. I'm, I'm glad for him. I'm glad he gets to go home and spend time with his family. If that's what Saul says, then we're fine. But if Saul gets angry, 
you be sure you find out what he intends to do about that. How angry is he? Now, in all of this, I want, I want you to notice the way that David handles the matter of leaving Saul's court and his house. Because we're talking about covenant keeping, and here we see David very openly breaking a covenant with the house of Saul. He's leaving. But you see, David is only willing to leave behind this covenant responsibility if he absolutely has no other choice and if he's being pushed out, which, which he is. Covenants with kind, agreeable people are easy to keep. It's easy to keep promises when everybody is getting along with you. Covenants with difficult people with disagreeable people are difficult to keep, but you still keep them. Covenants with covenant breakers are impossible to keep. Even the Lord doesn't keep covenant with covenant breakers. If you break the covenant, uh, the Lord uh, uh, judges you. So David is trying to determine, have I really done everything in my power? Have I done everything I can to work things out with Saul? Am I, I'm, I'm dealing with this irrational madman here that I, that I really can have no unity with I have my covenant with Saul. I, uh, David was his ceremonial armor bearer. Saul, uh, David was included as a member of Saul's house. He was Saul's son-in-law. He was the captain over his army. But Saul keeps breaking the covenant with David. And so, and so David is in a position here and saying, look, here's, here's one more chance. Is he, if he's willing to repent and if he's willing to renew the covenant with me, we can be friends. But if he's going to keep breaking the covenant and never repent which is Saul's pattern, which David knows, then the covenant is broken and I'm free to go. So David says to Jonathan, now we don't even have to go through this whole charade. David says to Jonathan, if there is iniquity in me, if you see iniquity in me, you can kill me now. You, you understand how seriously David takes his own sin and his own contribution to this relationship. And, and David says, if there is iniquity in me, don't even bother taking me to your father. If he wants me dead for some iniquity, you just, you just get it done right now. Let's, let's save some time. Let's set, cut Saul out of this and get it over with. But Jonathan is absolutely appalled at that suggestion. And he says, don't you think that if I thought that he really wanted you dead, and if he really wanted to kill you, the next time I saw you, I would tell you that. See, Jonathan is still clinging to, to Saul's earlier vow that he wouldn't kill David. Remember when uh, David was hiding and uh, Jonathan and Saul were talking to each other and, and Saul, he had to kind of talk his dad out of his tree to come down and act like a human and, and, and talk like a normal person. And Saul made a vow there before the Lord and said, I'm not going to kill David. Jonathan is clinging to that. And Jonathan thinks that that's still the case. And so Jonathan is trying to convince David that that's still the case. Uh, but, but then he says something incredibly interesting. I love what David, uh, Jonathan says in verse 13. And Yahweh be with you as he has been with my father. This realization is coming even further into clarity for Jonathan that Jonathan is not going to be the next king. It's going to be David. And he pledges his loyalty. He pledges his fealty. He pledges his honor to David. Again, don't forget, Jonathan is in his 40s. David is a teenager. And Jonathan is pledging his support and his love to this young man who's going to take his spot. Uh, well, David says, okay, well, how am I going to find out if your father answers you like a crazy person or if everything's going to be okay. And that's when Jonathan says, let's go out to the field. You, you see what I mean here about this, this conversation just 
breathing, this conversation just stretching out. It's not often in the Bible that you get a conversation that starts in one place and continues in another place. And, and you get a sense that a lot of time has passed here. So they start talking, uh, presumably at Saul's palace, and they go out to the field, and they're still talking. And uh, uh, Jonathan tells David, if my father is angry when he finds out that you aren't at the table, then, then I'm going to let you know, and I'm going to send you away so that you can go safely. Uh, and and this, is, this is how we're going to do it. But I, but I need assurance from you, David, that when you're made king, that you're not going to cut off your loving kindness. David, I am depending upon your covenant mercy because... I have not dealt treacherously with you, though I know that you're taking my place. I need you, when you become king, to not deal treacherously with my children and with my grandchildren. Let's make a covenant between our houses forever. I haven't behaved like a pagan prince towards you, and I need you to return the favor. You see, again, what would normally happen in this case if this was a pagan nation, when David was made king, what would he do? He would wipe out everybody in the house of Saul so that there wouldn't be a single usurper. There wouldn't be anybody out there who would, who would name a claim to the, to the throne. But David said to Jonathan, cut a covenant. That's, that's an idiom that forces us to recall circumcision. It forces us to recall the cutting up of an animal. This is no light matter. This is an agreement with, with the house of David and the house of Jonathan. It is a solemn oath. They are forging a covenant before the Lord. They make their vows to each other. And then, and then David, uh, I'm sorry, Jonathan lays out the rest of the plan. He says, tomorrow's the new moon. We sit down, you're going to be missed. David's absence is going to be provocative. Everybody's going to know that David's not there. Everybody's going to notice. And this, this is to the point of public embarrassment for Saul at this point because everyone knows about his failure to, to, to capture David. So Saul expects him there in spite of everything that's happened. When the king demands your presence at, a, at an affair, you don't get to stay home because you don't feel like it or because you had other plans. Saul's understanding is that David is part of his house and part of his court. So, so when, when dad responds, Jonathan says, when dad responds, I'm going to show you a sign. Now, there may be people following me because they know that we're friends. And so we've got to be a little bit subtle about this. I'm going to shoot three arrows out into the field. And I'm going to send a boy to go get them. And, and when I send the boy out to the field, if I say, come back, the arrows are this way, then you know that everything's safe. You know you can come back. But if I tell the little boy, oh, the, the arrows are further away, they're on the other side of you, then David, I want you to run the other way. It's, it's the signal that Jonathan is giving David. Once more, Jonathan says, do not forget our agreement. David, please do not forget our agreement. As I have, have committed myself to you, I need to know that you're committing yourself to me and we are going to keep this promise. I'm putting everything on the line here. David, I need to know that you're doing the same. And Yahweh himself will judge a breach of this covenant. That's what Jonathan says. Now, let's move to the banquet hall of Saul. Verse 24. Then David hid in the field. And when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he's unclean. 
And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go for our family has a sacrifice in the city. My brother has commanded me to be there. And now if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and a little lad was with him. Then he said to his lad, now run, find the arrows which I shoot. As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out, after the lad and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master, but the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, go carry them to the city. Now on the first day of the feast, Saul really doesn't make a big deal out of David being gone. He says, perhaps something out of his control has happened to him and he's unclean and he can't come. Obviously there's something going on, it's something minor and that's why David isn't here. The next day when Saul finds out that David's seed is empty, now he knows that something is up. He says, where is that son of Jesse? He's not even calling him by his name. He's not calling him David, he's using his last name. Like, where is Smith? Where, where is Johnson? Uh, and uh, he, uh, he's not his son-in-law. He's not even David at this point. This is an intentional cold and distant tone that he's taken. But why hasn't had that, that son of Jesse come to my table either today or yesterday? And Jonathan gives his prepared response. David asked permission of me to go back to Bethlehem to, to be with his family during the feast. And I told him he could. And then Saul explodes in anger toward Jonathan. He can't accept that David might possibly have another loyalty or commitment to anyone other than himself. The world revolves around Saul. And how can his own son give David permission to go do this? Permission comes from me, Jonathan. You can't give him permission to do that. So he calls his son a very, very, very bad name. He curses Jonathan. He accuses Jonathan of taking up for David over his own house. And because of that, Saul says, can't you see what you have done? You fool, don't you see what you're doing? You're establishing the son of Jesse in the seat that you're supposed to take. And now your house will not be established nor your kingdom. As if Saul had control over this, as if Saul had any say. Saul acting this way toward Jonathan is his way of showing his son how he would have acted toward David, the usurper to his crown. Well, any, any 
relationship that Jonathan had with his father has really disintegrated at this point. There's no doubt Jonathan now sees in full IMAX vision what is going on with Saul. There's, there's, no, there's no, nothing hidden here now. He sees the full picture of Saul's wrath. Jonathan finally gets it, and there's no denying it now. David really is in danger. Now, um, let, me, let me pick up, and I, I read a little bit ahead of where I intended, but uh, as soon as the lad had gone, David arose from the place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed down three times. They kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of Yahweh, saying, may Yahweh be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So then... Uh, Jonathan does exactly what he said he would do. He shoots the arrows and he even calls out after the lad, say, go and quickly, get out of here as quickly as you can. Little boy doesn't know what's going on. So here we see two sons of Saul. Jonathan is his son by birth. David is Saul's son by adoption and by marriage. Both sons of Saul devoted to Yahweh in a way that Saul isn't devoted to Yahweh. Both stalwart, courageous defenders of the sheep, but both with very different callings. We see them here very sadly, very tragically, Jonathan and David have to go their own ways. Jonathan goes back to his father's house, which is doomed, but Jonathan doesn't go back to try to grasp glory. He doesn't, he doesn't try to set him up, himself up as an equal to his younger brother here. Jonathan doesn't try to kill his brother, David. He knows from history how that's gone. So, so Jonathan doesn't consider himself or his own glory to be of any account, but Jonathan leaves the stage. Jonathan gets out of the way so that David can take his rightful place. What faith, what honor, what integrity Jonathan has. And Jonathan keeps his promises to David, and David will keep his promises to Jonathan. It's, it's so significant that all of this happens in a field, what other things have happened in fields between brothers? Remember, Cain envied his brother Abel, and, and he, he envied God's favor on his brother Abel, and he killed his brother. Cain killed his brother in a field. Later, Esau gave up his birthright to Jacob when, when Esau was coming in from the fields, and then, and then later raged against his brother because his brother was favored, and his brother was blessed, and Esau chased his brother from the fields. Joseph goes to meet his brothers in the field, and because they're envious of their father's favor for Joseph, they abuse him, they throw him into a pit, and they sell him into slavery. The favored brother in Bible history doesn't do well in a field until we get to Jonathan. Jonathan doesn't kill his brother like Cain. David is the favored brother. David is the one anointed by God. And Jonathan doesn't kill his brother like Cain. Jonathan doesn't go into his father and try to convince him to reverse the blessing and strip David of his honor the way that Esau goes into his father and asks for that very thing. Jonathan goes into his father's house, unlike Esau. Jonathan goes into his father's house to try to convince him to love and protect David. And his father's the one who wants to give the blessing to the wrong son. Jonathan doesn't abuse his brother and make him disappear the way that Joseph's brothers did. Jonathan is the faithful older brother, and he shows his faithfulness in a field where older brothers have always abused and have murdered and have rejected their younger brother. 
over and over and over through history. And yet Jonathan flips all of this on its head and he loves his, his, his younger brother. Out of covenant fidelity to David, he protects him in the field. He protects him from the tyrant, the maniac. And Jonathan loves him like his own soul. There's another encouraging parallel, but this one is between Jonathan and us. Jonathan wisely breaks with the house of the serpent. We've seen several weeks now how Saul, over and over, Saul is a serpent. He's a Laban, he's a Goliath, he's, a, he's an accuser, he's a blasphemer. Jonathan breaks with the house of the serpent. He breaks with the house of the covenant breaker, and Jonathan devotes himself to the house of the covenant keeper, David. Just like you and I have divorced ourselves from the family of Adam, who was our father, who is, was our covenant head, we have divorced ourselves from that covenant breaker and we have embraced the covenant keeper, Jesus. We've had a change of family. We are now embracing the favored one of God, the favored brother, the chosen one of the father. And now we have a covenant with Jesus. And Jesus says, I expect that many will have to leave their houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake. And Jesus says, if anyone's not willing to do so, he cannot be my disciple. So ultimately, if you do not leave the house of the covenant breaker, if you do not leave the house of Adam and join the house of the covenant keeper, Jesus, you do not have life. You must make that transition as Jonathan does. It's the kind of ch transition Jonathan is willing to make and one that we must follow him in if we're to have life. But for David, the only way that David can have rest and peace is because of the solid, unwavering covenant bond that he has between himself and and Jonathan. Jonathan is a promise keeper. David is a promise keeper. And so when Jonathan says to David, go in peace, you might think David, like, what? What do you mean go in peace? Don't you know what's going on here? This is nothing but warfare and terror. This is conflict. But Jonathan says, go in peace genuinely. This is, this is not a uh, greeting card sentiment. You can go in peace because we have peace. We have both sworn in the name of Yahweh. We have a covenant with God and with each other. I'm not simply accountable to you, David, to keep my word before you, but I am accountable to God to keep my word to you. This is a triangular relationship. Yes, we have an agreement, but we have an agreement before God. And if I break covenant with you, my brother, I have broken covenant with God. You see, you see, that's why covenant breaking is so grievous. That's why commitment breaking is so awful and terrible. If I break a promise or break an agreement, I'm not just violating you. I'm not just injuring you. I'm not just abusing you. I'm destroying my fellowship with God and his people. Covenant breaking cannot be tolerated. Covenant breakers cannot be abided. Covenant breakers, promise breakers, have no fellowship with God. That's why it's imperative that we be a people of covenant faithfulness. That we reject the spirit of casual independence. That, you know, I don't have to commit to anything. I don't, I don't have to promise anything. I don't, I don't want to be tied to anybody. I don't want to be tied to anything. And, and if we do commit, we, we, we reject this idea that we don't take the commitment seriously. We reject this behavior of the, of the lone wolf going our own way, doing our own thing, disconnected, unaccountable. It is vital that we take seriously the vows that we have made. Though those vows we have made in our marriage covenants, the vows we have made to the church, 
the promises that we make to each other, and we keep them. That we commit ourselves to each other the way that David and Jonathan committed themselves to each other before God. That, that we submit ourselves to each other and we love each other by binding ourselves together in love. And to create this space of true peace and safety. <laughs> they erect these safe spaces on college campuses anytime somebody says something they don't like. You know, and they play with Play-Doh and they build with Legos and they color with crayons and it's, it's nonsense. But, but here is truly the safest place on earth. This really is the safe space. This is the peaceful space. And that is the covenant because we are pledged to each other. You can say, I've got my brothers, I've got my sisters. I don't care what happens. This, 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 is, my, this is my family. These are my people. We're pledged and, and we, we have fidelity toward each other. There's no stability. There's no peace without that kind of agreement. And just as the members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each pledge and covenant to each other, they're submitted to each other, they're, they're committed to each other's glory, so you and I are bound up in covenant together, esteeming each other more highly than ourselves, granting and giving and loving glory and exchanging sacrifice and service to each other. That's the picture we get with David and Jonathan. And I pray that it, it's a model for us because they're, they're just acting like God acts. That's, that's why it's so special. They're acting the way the Lord acts and they shine this light on this covenant keeping behavior that he expects from his people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to make us covenant-keeping people, that you give us your Holy Spirit, wrap us up in the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that, so that we can get this and practice this, that we are, we are people of our word, we are people who are happy to commit ourselves to good things and submit to each other in love. So Father, we can't do this on our own. We're, we're so wayward. We, we, are, we are covenant breakers and we are promise breakers. I mean, we're, we're, we're children of our father, Adam. We need you to change us. Uh, we need you to transform us into the image of the, the covenant keeper, Jesus. Please uh, do this for us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.